Welcome. To Today we're going to be looking at the conclusion, the last two verses of Parshat Vayetze. It's really a, a remarkable, extraordinary Torah portion. And I'm really excited about this class because you're going to get acquainted with some extraterrestrials <laughs> or, or angels. And you'll have a a deeper appreciation of and an understanding about the notion of that which is, well, beyond the normal, at least to some degree, if not experientially, on a our sponsors, John and Romy Paul, they are celebrating the birth of a, a new baby, a little girl who is named here in this very room in this shul. Uh, just two days ago. Her name is Avigail Chaya, and she should be raised by her parents, Jonathan and Romy, and grandparents in Metz Hashem. She should be raised to Torah, to Chuppah, or to Maasim Tovim. They should have nachas from her, she should have nachas from them, and there should only be simchas in the family of Metz Hashem. Amen. And the schos of the merit of today's Torah study will serve to give her a, an infusion of strength as she begins her life, now imbued with a sense of added holiness and spirituality as everybody's studying Torah in her honor. All right, so let's get to it. Um, the Parsha, it opens with Yaakov, Father Jacob, leaving the land of Canaan. And he encounters a place, but of course that encountering is an odd or strange way to speak of reaching a place. When you use terminology like encounter, forgive me for my uh, lack of etiquette, bumping into, it's kind of what it means. Almost like, you know, I encountered or I kind of, we hit, we hit each other, we bumped into each other. You don't bump into a place, the place is stationary, the person is in movement. Yet the Torah uses that terminology, and Rashi tells us that's because the ground was actually moving towards Yaakov. Now what exactly that means and how we are to understand it is beyond the purview of today's class. I actually taught at least two classes on this. If this notion of ground moving is of interest to you. But I want to emphasize the terminology that the Torah uses at the outset of the parsha. He encounters a place because the Torah portion concludes with the same verbiage. Now it's plural. Something or somebody is encountering Yaakov. It's not a normative situation. It's not, it's not people. Certainly, extraterrestrial or being reality encounters Yaakov and we use that terminology at the outset and we use the terminology at the end and that's important so let's put that in the back burner for a minute and let me introduce you to the next very very interesting corollary between the beginning of the Parsha and its conclusion at the beginning when Father Jacob is at the place as it's referred to, Hamakom. This is the place of the Akedah. This is the place where 
Abraham and Isaac communed with God and achieved extraordinary levels of spiritual consciousness. This is the place that will ultimately serve as our ground zero for all things spiritual. Even in today's day and age when the Beit HaMikdash does not stand physically or terrestrially, the site of the Mikdash still continues to function as the place where heaven and earth kiss, the, the place where our prayers are, if you will, beamed to heaven. So this place, which Yaakov calls the gateway to heaven, Sha'ar HaShemayim, this place is where Yaakov sees in a nocturnal prophetic vision, angels. There's a ladder, angels are ascending, and angels are descending. And there Yaakov receives this powerful prophecy about the fortunes of the nation that he is going to be blessed and privileged to found, Uforatzna. This incredibly powerful ability to break out of any limitations, and that's a subject for other classes, and I've actually given them in their online. I encourage you to watch at least two classes that I've given on the notion of Uforatzna and that prophecy. But the point that I want to drive home right now for our class, the second introductory point as we set the stage for our meeting with the extraterrestrials, is that the angels ascending are called Malachi Eretz Yisrael, the angels of Israel. The angels descending are Malachi Chutzlaretz, God's angels who will accompany Jacob outside of the land of Israel. So there's this notion of Jacob, Yaakov Avinu, always being accompanied. He's going to be accompanied by angels wherever he goes. But in the land of Israel, in Eretz Yisrael, the angels there are of a different nature. They're Israeli angels. They don't go past the border. What prompts Rashi even to explain this business of the angels ascending and descending as being identified with the angels who have to now leave Yaakov because he's about to leave Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, at the time called Canaan, or because the new angels that have to be accompanying him are only now at this point descending so that they can leave the land of Israel together with Yaakov. So the thing is that what, what bothers Rashi, and he spells this out clearly, he says, Olim Trila, first they're going up, Yordim, and then they're coming down. What's the question? Well, the natural place for angels, if you have to ascribe some kind of location or geography, is heaven. Now that doesn't mean when you're on a plane, your davening is any more effective. And it certainly doesn't mean that if you're part of NASA or you end up landing on the moon, that you're any closer to God or you're occupying a spiritual space. This is all metaphorically speaking, it's all euphemism. When we, when we talk about Avinu Shabashamayim, a father in heaven, it's widely known that this is a euphemism for God or the presence of divinity. That's not a reference to the stratosphere. But euphemistically speaking, there's earth or earthiness, our terrestrial 
everyday pedestrian reality, and then the reality that's beyond our experiences. And that which we do not have in intimate knowledge because we never really are privy to that reality. At least most of us aren't. We're able to see that which meets the eye or that which in some way is reflected through the reality of photons and it doesn't have to have depth, it doesn't have to have some kind of density because virtual reality can appear as real as reality, terrestrial or tangible reality. But these are things that are real by virtue of the fact that we see them. So that's one form, one methodology, one dimension for us to identify what is or isn't that which we can see. Then there are things we can hear. Things heard cannot be seen. We can't see the reverberation of sound or see the difference between a shrill sound or a sweet sound. They don't have a color attached to them or a shape. But nonetheless, they're identified by virtue of what we can hear. There are things that we can touch. And of course, that's where virtual reality and reality separate because reality is something you can sink your teeth into, whereas virtual reality, it's just a mirage. It's just that image which is real in the realm of sight, in the realm of what can be... But it's not real when we talk about that which can be touched. We can identify things by virtue of the taste. Salt and sugar may look exactly the same. They may actually feel the same. So let me feel that salt. Yeah, this is really sharp salt. Oh, that's really sweet sugar. I mean, like, that's ridiculous. The touch is not how we identify it, necessarily. It can be seemingly identical from a perspective of touch. They don't make different sounds when they land, for example, on a paper. Granules are granules. Granules hitting a paper will make the same sounds or being shook in some kind of container. So the sounds are the same. They generate the same waves, sound waves. They look exactly the same. They feel the same, but the distinctions in taste. And just as violet and green don't taste different, but they look different, salt and sugar don't look different, but they taste very different. Those are different senses. So I'm just simply reiterating the obvious. These are different senses with which we are able to identify what we call our realm of reality, a reflection of our experiences. Until very recently, radio waves didn't exist, but we couldn't identify them. We couldn't interpret them into a way that they could be heard, so they didn't exist. But of course, they did exist. It's just that people didn't know what they were. And we didn't have the technology to create the notion of a mechanism that could actually interpret these radio, something that's audible. And we've gotten much better at that, not the metallic sounds of the, the 30s. Now it's stereo sound or beyond. When we talk about spirituality, we talk about angels. I certainly have no idea what I'm talking about. I've never seen angels, and I, I don't know what that even means. They're not identified by virtue of sight in the manner that you and I can see. They're not identified by virtue of taste or scent. They don't smell a certain way. 
They don't feel, can't feel them, but it's a reality. It's a reality that's referred to as heaven. Okay, so now in the metaphor, Yaakov's being shown this ladder and angels are going up and angels are going down, which is a prophecy and not to be taken literally. Why would angels be going up? Angels are, of course, something that has to be brought down before they go up. So Rashi says, well, that's true. However, the malachim shalivu ba'aretz, the angels that came along with him in Eretz Yisrael, they can't leave the land of Israel. And because they can't leave the land of Israel, proverbially speaking, they ascend to the heavens. And so now the outside of Israel angels are going to come down to escort Yaakov on his journeys. Now, what are these angels? What, are, what, what exactly, what, what is it? It's a, it's, a, it's a force. Certainly the force of spirit. Definitely not the spirit of force. They're, a, they're an energy. We could perhaps see the symptoms of the angels, much like we could see the symptoms of electricity, but raw energy or electrons can't actually be seen by the naked eye. They can't be tasted. I'm not so sure electrons themselves can even be felt, although when it's translated into a current, boy, can it be felt. But angels are none of the above. We don't have a range of experience within our six senses that enable us to identify angels, but they're real. There's a beautiful story about the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Rebbe of the Chabad Lubavitch dynasty. He's traveling to the Viennese Alps, he was a very sickly man. And he exhausted and depleted himself on a regular basis. And he needed to convalesce and kind of get back to himself so that he continued to give of body, mind, and soul to the Hasidim. So the story goes that he's on this coach that's taking them, that's taking them in the direction of where he will convalesce and where he will be able to regain his strength. And there's another very, very smart Jew sitting with him on this coach, called like an UberX, you know, like a, <laughs> there's a bunch of people, they're going the same direction. So instead of everybody harnessing their own coach, the coach is taking a group of people, call it the forerunner of a train, the city bus, I don't know, whatever you want. So they're sitting there and, and this man is an intellectual. And he says to the Rebbe, who he clearly identifies as a rabbi, scholar, saint, sage, he says to him, I don't believe in angels because, you know, I don't believe in anything, I can't see it. Well, it's ridiculous. If, if he was around today, he'd probably say, uh, he'd compare it to leprechauns or, or the, the tooth fairy. It's baloney. It's little children you tell stories like that. And the Rebbe Rashab says to him, you know, you know, he says, um, we're traveling and there are a number of different consciousness, different views or minds about this journey. He says, for example, there, there's us, and we're going to this resort. We're going to try to regain our strength so that we can return and work at full tilt. And then there's the, the coach person. In his mind, he's not going to the resort. In fact, he's going to be dropping us off and then turning right around. Perhaps he was taking them to a train station. I don't know if he was going to all the way to the resort area, but he was there merely to perform a journey that was a means to an end. 
The journey was not his purpose. He didn't want to get to that destination. He needed to get paid. He's just trying to make a living. So he doesn't want to go there. He's not going on vacation. He's not going on holiday. He's simply taking his passenger somewhere. And then the Rebbe said, there's the horse. And the horse is running with great strength, great stamina. But even the horse needs a little bit of encouragement. So the coach person would have a sack of oats that he would dangle in front of the horse. And the horse would smell the oats. And the horse wasn't smart enough to know that the faster he ran, he would not get any closer to the oats because the oats are being dangled in front of him by the coach person who's actually sitting on the wagon. But horses aren't that smart. But he was smart enough to know that it was a short distance away from him, and so he was motivated to keep running. And every once in a while, so as not to frustrate the horse, the coach person would expertly bring the sack a little closer so that the horse could feast himself on some of those oats, and then he would slowly send it forward again. And now the horse is motivated to run. And I suppose coach people and horses have this relationship. They know how far they can be pushed and when it's too much. And it's a, he'd make it a living, at least he was in those days. Now, the Rebbe Rashab turns to this fellow and says, tell me, just because the horse doesn't know about the resort and our vacation, does it mean the vacation, that there are no angels? Essentially, he nicely told this fellow in Yiddish, you're a horse, basically. I mean, like, just because you're as limited as the horses and not being able to understand human intelligence or what you're thinking, that does not become the arbiter or barometer of truth. You're basically, in comparison with the spiritual reality, as about as intelligent and perceptive as a horse. Now, a Rebbe has these experiences and. I, I, I don't know anything about this. I'm, I'm a horse too. I don't, I'm just trying to study what, what's written here. And I don't have any frame of reference for this per se. None of us do. And that's fine. We're not expected to. We're not tzaddikim. We're not saintly righteous people. We live with a, a very healthy sense of, of, of esteem and confidence, which is probably a little bit too healthy. We're too much aware of ourselves, which makes us less aware of God's presence. That's a problem that blocks us from being able to appreciate or experience higher truths. We focus on the here and now, on the minutia or mumbo-jumbo that populates our life, and therefore we're not privy. We don't open ourselves to a higher, a loftier, a more exalted and rarefied reality, but it doesn't mean that there aren't or weren't people who could be open to this, who were able to perceive these kind of things with higher faculties. So our Father Jacob experiences in a very real way the presence of God and the appearance of angels, angels appearing or departing and new angels appearing, and he knows that this is real. Yaakov is, you know, Rebbe material. He knows, he knows that this is really a prophet. Okay. So Yaakov sees the angels in the beginning, and that's how he sets off on his journey. We don't hear about angels again, although there's some midrashic discussion of angelic assistance for Yaakov as he's trying to eke out a living from a father-in-law who does everything to thwart him and undermine him. 
the angels aren't mentioned, but at the end of the Parsha, it, it ends very much like it begins. Jacob, once again, is having an angelic experience. According to the Rambam's son, Rabbi Avram, this is actually what you would call a prophecy. Rambam's son maintained that these final verses, this is a prophetic vision. And whilst Jacob didn't lie down to sleep, he was being shown things on a prophetic plane. But that's not necessarily the way we understand these verses. In the beginning of the Torah portion, Yaakov lays down to sleep. And yes, he sees them in a dreamlike state. But now Yaakov's on two feet. And as the Rebbe once said, this is what happens when a person engages with the material world and utilizes and harnesses and marshals every ounce of wherewithal and effort to elevate it and sublimate it. The result of achieving the success in that mission enabled Yaakov this time to be able to see angels not in a subconscious state or in a dream, but he was fully awake. Yaakov doesn't lie down to go to sleep. In fact, he's journeying towards the land of Israel. So let's begin our study. This is all just kind of setting the stage so that you'll appreciate what we're going to learn today. This is fascinating stuff. I hope you're still I hope you're still with me. I hope you stay with me for the duration of this class. I really do believe that you'll find it uplifting, maybe even entertaining, but certainly inspirational. And there's some very powerful takeaways that we will be able to find despite the nature of the subject in, insofar as it not being part of our everyday life. But it really, it really can infuse our ordinary elements of life with an extraordinary awareness of holiness, spirituality, God's presence, and the powers, the abilities that we're given. But let's study. So if you're able to, I encourage you to open the Chumash, the end of Parshat Vayetze. We're going to be taking a look at the 32nd chapter of the book of Genesis. We're not going to look at the first verse of the 32nd chapter. That's Laban, not a nice man, bearing, he's giving his children a farewell. He kisses his daughters, his sons and his daughters. That's a euphemism for grandchildren. He blesses them. And the Sepharno actually tells us, you know, he blesses them. He says, the Sepharno says, even a, a nobody. Don't, don't uh, discount his blessings. There's some value to those blessings. The Sepharno says, and that's because if a person blesses b'chol nafsho, with all of his heart, with all of his energy, they could be effective. Then, roi shetochel yoiser, b'skula selim because everybody has an image of God. Every human being is created in the image of God. You don't have to be Jewish for this. Laban wasn't Jewish. In fact, uh, some of the commentaries maintain that the notion of birchet hedyot, that the hedyot refers to the blessing of somebody who's not Jewish. The reason... I once read that tzaddikim are uniquely poised to bless, whereas everybody seems able to curse, is that to be able to bless somebody with all your heart, with all your soul, really engaged and being concerned with the welfare of another, not thinking about yourself at all, it's kind of in the domain or purview of tzaddikim, of holy, righteous individuals. Unfortunately, we're all quite capable of cursing, and wishing the opposite of good on another. 
But as the Sephardo points out, and the Mepharshim actually discussed this, when it's apparent, the only example of non-Sadiqim that are capable of blessing with the whole full ability and altruism of the heart, marshalling every ounce of the image of God that is stamped onto us, that's woven into our fabric of our being, is something that parents can do, or grandparents, especially towards the end of their life. And if you can get a blessing from parents, you should. You know, of course, parents bless their children, Erev Yom Kippur, because those are, those are sincere blessings. In many communities, there's a custom of parents blessing their children on a Friday evening as Shabbat enters. And in our Chabad circles, it's not the tradition, but Erev Yom Kippur, everybody is elevated and everybody's kind of feeling poignant. So you bless your children and you, you, you pour forth in, in desire and yearning for your children's welfare. That's meaningful. It's meaningful because you have the image of God that's actually a part of the fabric of your being. Even a Laban can bless when he kisses his children with affection and with love. But anyway, Vayashov Lovan Limakomo, Lovan goes back to his place. There's a fascinating medrash that says, but Lovan came back, he didn't even have a house because of the way he tormented Jacob. God decided to entertain him a little and he sent a bunch of thieves and moraders and they basically robbed him of everything and destroyed his home. So it says he came back Limkomo to his place, but not Lebeto because his house had been totally destroyed. But at any rate, this is subjects for perhaps another class or another day. I want to study two verses with you today. The last two verses of Parshat Vayetze, please don't pay attention to the fact that it's the beginning of a new chapter. These chapters do not come from Jewish sources. They were made by monks and monasteries who were reading the forerunner of a King James Version of translation. And they didn't really know where things began or ended. They didn't understand Parshiot, which are ordained from the very beginning and are for us what we call Halakha Lamoshim Isina. So at any rate, the last two verses, last two psukim of the Parsha, begin with the words of Yaakov. We return to Yaakov. The encounter is over. He's finished with Laban. In next week's Parsha, he will be locking horns with Esau. But now he's, now he's doing Yaakov. He's in between challenges. The Yaakov halach ledarko. Yaakov goes on his way. What's his way? So Gersonides, Rabbeinu Levi ben Gershon, called Ralbag, he says, Lashuv le'eretz avotav. That's his way. That's our way. Our way is the way that takes us to Eretz Yisro. I think somebody once asked the famous Hasidic master, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, where are you going? And he said, oh, to Eretz Yisrael. I'm going to Israel. And he said, you are? He says, everywhere I go, I'm going to Israel. Because really, every step we take is part of a journey, a purposeful journey, that's supposed to be leading us towards redemption. As the great Lithuanian Torah sage, Rabbi Chaim of Brisk, once commented on the words that are found in the Mishnah. We recite this Mishnah on the eve of Passover at the Pesach Seder. Kol the words all the days of your life, Lahavi, to include Yemot HaMashiach is the literal reading of the Mishnah, but Reb Chaim Brisker said, Kol all life should be focused, Lahavi, to bring Yemot HaMashiach 
to the days of Mashiach, to redemption. That's, that should be our singular focus. So Yaakov is returning. He's going on his way. He's been kind of marching to many other drummers. He's been dealing with Laban, dealing with Baghdad, Choram. He's away from that. He's leaving that. He's going on his way, and his way is Le'eretz Avotav, to the land of his parents. This is where Yitzchak and Rivka married. This is where Yitzchak was born and never left. Rivka hasn't, doesn't leave since she arrives really as a child bride. And this is the place that Avraham and Sarah came to by virtue or dint of the divine command Lech Lecha. So this is Eretz Avotav. And as Yaakov goes on his way, the Torah says, he's in motion, Vayifku Bo. He is encountered by, they encounter him. Who? Malachi Elohim. Angels of God. Now there is a narrative, a reading of this from the Abarbanel who says it's a euphemism. It doesn't mean angels, it's people. But when you encounter people, that's also by divine design. They also have a message. Is God sending you a message? God has many angels, so to speak. The delivery boy may not know that he's actually delivering a message from God. But this is not the Pshuta Mikra. It is a philosophical rationalization of the story that is a dimension of Torah. But it is not the Pshuta Mikra. The literal meaning is Malach Elikim, is angels of God. So, as Rabbi Avram ben Arambam says, you might see this as a prophecy, but on a literal level, it doesn't say the Yaakov Yashan, Yaakov went to sleep and he saw angels. It says the Yaakov Halach Ladarko. Yaakov is on his way. He's on his way and he encounters angels. This is very real. He's encountering angels. Now it says Ubo. They, they encounter him. And, and who are these angels? And why does it say Ubo? So it's interesting to note that the terminology Vayifka Ubo, where did I see this? Ah. There was a, a great sage, a Spanish sage, his name was uh, one of the Rishonas, his name is Shloma. I think the name is pronounced Ashturk or Isturok. I'm not sure. Anyway, this Rabbi Shlomo says, it doesn't say, Elohim. It doesn't say he encountered in the angels. It says, bo. they encountered him. Ah, so he says, if they encountered him, they were in motion. See, earlier at the beginning of the Parsha, Yaakov encounters something that's moving. The land is moving towards him. He encounters, he bangs into, bumps into the land. Here, they encounter him. They, they're, they're in motion. He's in motion, but they're in motion. And Rabbi Shlomo says they are coming towards him. Now, who, who are these angels? What, what's going on here? We don't know. The, the Chumash doesn't really tell us. Chumash just says they encountered. God's angels encounter him. So let me take, uh, take you to the Targum Yonatan ben Ozil and just share with you. Actually, we'll come to the Targum in a moment. So 
Who, who are these angels? These angels, says Rashi, that are encountering him, are Malachim Shal Eretz Yisrael. They're angels of Israel. And they are Ba'u Likrato. They have coming, they're coming to greet him. They're coming to welcome Yaakov home. So they're in motion. They're not the welcoming party, but rather, meaning that the party is sitting and waiting, when he arrives, they'll be there to greet him. They're actively going out to welcome him. And Rashi adds the words, Lilavoto la'aretz, to escort him. So they're going to greet him and then escort him, walk with him, bring him into the land of Canaan, the future land of Israel. Now this is, this is really interesting. This is really interesting. These angels are coming out of Israel to greet him. Let me, let me share with you how the Amloas anthologizes from a, a variety of sources. I mean, the, the sources that he quotes for this are inclusive of the Bereshit Rabbah, Medrash Rabbah that I'm going to share with you in a moment, but it's also based on what the Medrash says later. It's based on the statements a narrative that's found in the Zohar in Parshas Mitzorah, as well as the Zohar Chadash in Parshas Noach and the Zohar in Parshas Vayera. And I'm going to read to you from the Zohar in Parshas Hazino soon about angels, but really this is sewn, it's woven from about six sources. Nobody weaves it together quite in the way that the Ma'am Loez does. And in his holy genius, in his understanding of these various sources, he, he really compiles, I think, an unparalleled narrative, a narrative that's not found anywhere. I didn't find it anywhere. I'm not so smart, but I didn't find it anywhere else. And it comes from all these sources, and the Mamloys kind of strings it or sews it all together in really a, an exquisite way. So I'm going I'm to share with you from the Mamloys. I'll translate from the Hebrew. He says, we read earlier of Yaakov going out. And there's a, a, a lot of hay made about Vayetze, that Yaakov goes out. Why do we have to say Vayetzi? Why do we have to say that he goes out? And the upshot, as Rashi talks about this, this is, this is talked about by our sages, but the upshot is that when Yaakov left, it made an impact. He left a, he left a gaping hole behind. Yaakov created an environment around him, as tzaddikim do. And Yitzchak, as the Rebbe once explained, was seeing impaired. He was already a very elderly person. He, had a, it was, he was in a retired state. He was involved in deep prayer, but he wasn't engaged with the outside world. But Yaakov was very much in the prime of his life, engaged in the outside world. And as such, he created a, a, a storm, a, a, an energy field around him. And then Yaakov left. And it wasn't the same Be'er Sheva, wasn't the same Hebron. Something had changed. So, in the Chumash, it says Yaakov leaves Be'er Sheva. The Ma'amloi says Yaakov leaves Hebron. He talks about Hebron in this notion here. But when Rashi talks about it, it doesn't say Hebron, he says Be'er Sheva. And the point is, Asta Roshem Gadol. It made a huge impact. There was a chesaron. There was something missing. And Ma'amloi interestingly talks about Hebron, because I think that's what the Zohar says. But on the literal level, what the Medrash says, or Rashi quotes is Be'er Sheva. At any rate, Yaakov was in Be'er Sheva. He was in Hebron. He was uh, living in Israel. And he, he was in motion, and he made a tremendous impact, and then Yaakov left. Who felt the impact? 
the populace knew the difference. But on a deeper level, who appreciates the presence of a tzaddik most? The angels. Angels live amongst us. We just don't see them. And if we would, we'd lose our minds because we're not primed to see the angels. We read about that notion in the story, the Torah's narrative of the evil prophet Bilam, who sets out to imprecate, to curse the Jewish people. And his donkey is impeded by an angel of God. It's actually a protective angel. He's trying to shield Bilam from his own evil. And the donkey can see the angel, but Bilam can't. Until such time as God opens his eyes, and suddenly he becomes privy to this reality. And Rashi, quoting our sages, explains that the reason that the donkey can see what Bilam or people can't is because animals don't have the self-conscious awareness that we do. They don't have a mind to lose. We can lose our minds by seeing certain things or certain pressures of certain realities that become so overwhelming for us, it could literally crack us up, make us crazy. The animal's just fine because he's clueless to begin with. So the animals can see this reality. We can't. We can't. doesn't mean there aren't angels amongst us. There are. And I'll talk about that in a moment. We can't see them. And the Mamlois, quoting from these sources, pulling it together, says that the angels felt the tremendous emptiness, the loss of the tzaddik. Achshav shechazar. Now that Yaakov is returning, Samchu hamalochim simchayetera. There was a ripple of joy through the ranks of the angels. Ubo shishim riboy. Six hundred thousand angels now came kadeli hikanes imola eretz Yisrael besimcha raba to enter the land of Israel in great joy. Now, Rashi doesn't talk about their attitude or their mood, but the Medrash does. From Rashi's commentary, that's not relevant. And there's no detail of the scripture that requires an elucidation or us being introduced to their attitude or joy or mood. So Rashi won't tell us that. What does require elucidation is, who are these angels that encountered Yaakov? There's angels in motion encountering Yaakov. Where are they coming from? Where are they going? So that Rashi says, he's a malach here, it's but. Mom Lois is giving us the Midrashic backstory. And he says, this will explain to us why when Yaakov sees the angels, he makes a statement. He says, oh, this is, these are angels. These are, these are two groups of angels. And we'll come back to this soon. We'll come back to this Mom Lois soon. So I want to take you on a little journey back from uh, the 19th century. I want to take you to the 2nd century. And let's take a look in the Medrash Rabbah. Let's see what the Medrash Rabbah, how it describes Yaakov encountering angels. So the Medrash Rabbah in chapter 74, subsection 17 says, the Yaakov holach ladarko, he goes on his way and the scripture says, and the Medrash asks, kama malochim hoyu. How many angels were dancing, joyously celebrating to welcome Jacob home? The word chalim 
comes from the terminology of dancing in circles. A machol is a, you know, a circular dance. If you've ever been to a Hasidic wedding or a traditional wedding, you know what I mean. So the, the angels were dancing the horror. They were delighted. Yaakov was back. And they were, they were chalim or maraktim, dancing together, dancing solo, individually. The kazatska. Before Jacob. So Rav Huna, b'shem, Rav Aivu Omar, Samach Ribu Melachim. There were 600,000 Melachim that were dancing, Cholim. He's dancing the horror in front of Yaakov. So excited to see him as he is entering the land of Israel. This is the meaning of what is written in the next verse. And I didn't read the next verse to you. Verse 2 is what I read. Verse 3 is Vayomer Yaakov. Yaakov says something, Kasher Ra'om, when he sees. Machana Elohim When he sees this camp of God, he says something. What does he say? He says, Vayomer Yaakov, Yaakov says, Kasher Ra'om, when he sees, Machana Elohim This is a camp of God. That's what he said. Who is he speaking to? What was the purpose of his saying? We'll see in a moment. So Yaakov says, this is a camp of God. And then, after saying or identifying these creatures, these extraterrestrials, this presence, after identifying them as angels of God, then Yaakov calls, names the place where all of this occurred. Vayikra Shem HaMakom he calls the name of that place Machanoim. Now Yaakov, this is not the first time he's done this. In the beginning of the parsha, he has this experience of seeing angels and then he names the place for that event, for that experience. He calls it Beit Kel. He says, this is such and such. And he names the place. So this is Yaakov's practice, it seems. He merits seeing the angels, and then he calls or attaches a name to the place, as if to indicate that this is the place where this happened. Doesn't sound like Yaakov sees angels every day. There's, there's a special moment. There's something unique going on here as Yaakov comes back to the land of Israel. How do we know the 600,000? So it says, he, ra'am, he says, machana lekimza. This is a machana, camp of God. So the Medrash tells us, Ein shechina shora pachot The presence of God, encampment of God, which is a euphemism for the presence of God, the shechina, cannot rest with less than 600,000. That's the number required. And as the Medrash says elsewhere, that's what we see with Matan Torah, when the Torah was given to the Jewish people, there were 600,000 neshamot, souls, or Jewish people. That's a minimum. But we know that that minimum number, that modicum number was reached. So therefore, there has to be 600,000 angels. Now, I don't know the difference here. One angel, a thousand angels, 600,000 angels. I don't really know what I'm talking about, but that's what it says. I'm just reading to you what it says. Rabbanan Ami, our sages say, no, no, no. There was not 600,000, but twice that. Kuf, chof. There was 1.2 million. And that's why it says, Vayikrashim Hamokum, he called that place Machanoim. Machanoim means twin camp. Machana, one camp, gives you 600,000. Machanoim, Kufchof, 120, not 600,000, but 120,000. Well, 1.2 million, <laughs> 1,020. Amr Rabbi Yudan, Rabbi Yudan says, these are the angels that Yaakov took. He took from amongst them. 
and he sent pruzvin lefanov. He sent messengers before him, and that, of course, kind of flows directly into the next Torah portion where it says, "Vayishlach Yaakov Malachim." Yaakov sends angels, and he is now testing the waters with Esau, with Esau. That's his next encounter, but that's already beyond the purview of of today's class. Okay, so we hear in the Medrash of joyous angels and enormous numbers of angels. And according to the Medrash, there are two camps of angels, but we don't know who these two camps are. So Rashi very interestingly says, ah, the two camps, I'll tell you who the two camps are. The two camps are, Machanoim, he says, Shtei Machanot. Well, we know that angels were accompanying Jacob outside of Israel. That's at the beginning of the parsha we already identified. Angels of Israel went back, proverbially speaking, to heaven. Angels of outside of Israel came to accompany Yaakov. The angels were with Yaakov the whole time. So they didn't leave yet because they're not yet in Israel. But a new group of angels came out from Israel. And it seems that whenever the angels come, they come in this huge battalion, 600,000. So therefore, it's Shtei Machanot. We have two camps. Machanoim is two camps. And Shelchutzelaretz, Shabo Imo, these are the angels who came from the area, the terrain outside of Israel. Adkan, up until this point. And then, Vishalaretz Yisrael, the angels of Israel, Shabo Likrosi. So, according to the, the interpretation of Rashi, there are the angels that were with Yaakov all the time, the angels that came to greet him, and it doesn't really say that Yaakov saw the presence of the angels all the time, but maybe at this moment, when the new angels were coming and the other angels had been with him, suddenly his eyes were opened. Now he saw all of the angels, and so he calls it Machanoim. Now, let me share with you a statement that's found in the Zohar, in Parshas Hazinu, on page 200. And 98 of the third section of the Zohar, the Zohar says like this, why is it written that God said, and I came down into Egypt? What's the end? So the Medrash says, the Zohar says, Kad Yaakov the Mitzrayim, there was already angels, Bekadmita. already the angels there. The presence of God was already there in, in this form of angels. And that was Kad Yaakov the Mitzrayim. The Lama, and why were they there? To save them from the Egyptians. If not for the angels amongst them, they would never be able to suffer, to withstand the pressures that were brought to bear. We would have collapsed. This is very powerful. Because, my friends, what the Zohar is really telling us is that you and I have angels with us. If not for that angelic accompaniment, we wouldn't be able to survive. But we are surviving, and we're even flourishing, because Hashem's presence is amongst us. That's the meaning of ki malachav yitzaveh lach. God commands His angels. Psalm 91. God commands His angels. We talk about angels actually fairly often. Every Friday night, we believe that when you come home from the synagogue services from Shul, there are angels that accompany you. Angels maybe even take on a certain form. We had a very special member of our Shul. It's unfortunately been it was taken from us far too soon. His name was Tom Adler. And 
to Tom one Friday evening walking home from Shul out of nowhere suddenly found two large dogs on either side and they didn't touch him they didn't bark but they walked him home they stayed with him all the way from Shul and he walked home and when he came to his house these dogs ran away and I remember him coming the next day to Shul he was just beside himself like what what was that and who am I to know but I, I felt maybe that maybe there was some kind of danger maybe there was something that could have harmed him that day and Hashem chose to send angels in the form of in a canine form God the angels can assume any form I mean it was just so chilling Friday night to have two dogs who didn't bark or bother him and they didn't have collars they weren't coyotes I know we, we've got coyotes now they weren't coyotes they were dogs he knew a dog from a coyote and they accompanied him and then disappeared. Who knows, my friends? Who really knows? I had a, an amazing story in this very room going back some 20 years ago. Of, that's a long story, but I've, there was a fire. It was Friday night. I needed somebody to help me, and out of nowhere, out of the blue, a person comes at the right moment and is there, and, and he's looking for a job, and I tell him, come back after Shabbos, and I'll get you a job, and the person disappears. I never, ever saw him again. I was convinced there was an angel. and Maybe it's the Abarbanel's angels. Maybe it's, you know, a, a person shows up propelled by a force without even knowing that he or she is actually a messenger. At any rate, what form the Malachim take, I don't know. You don't know. We don't have to know. Don't expect to see angels. But you have to know there are angels with you. This is very real. And... Those are the angels, the Zohar says. And then we know this because Yaakov Holoch Ladarko, and we know when Yaakov, Vayomer Yaakov Kasharom, when he could see them, he said, Oh, Machner Likimze. So the Zohar seems to indicate there are always angels with Yaakov, but here he got to see them. Here he got to see them. In Rashi's way of understanding this, it makes perfect sense because these are the angels who were accompanying Yaakov outside of Eretz Yisrael and Malachi Eretz Yisrael are coming to greet him. Makes perfect sense. The Ma'amlois has a little bit of a different suggestion based on these various sources. He says that every single time you do something good and holy and it probably didn't come easily and certainly didn't come instinctually or naturally but whenever you do a mitzvah there's an angel created. And he says, Yaakov wasn't missing any angels. Because he did so many mitzvahs and studied, he did so many good deeds and studied so much Torah. And those angels guarded him from all evil. Now that Yaakov is going on his way to return to Yisrael, God saw Yaakov coming. He sent special angels, not the energy fields you create through your good deeds. These are angels that are objective of Yaakov's own, the angels that you or I might create through good deeds. God actually sends angels, sent angels. And that's what Yaakov saw. This was the Machalik and Elohim. So the Enam Elushen these are not the angels that are created by Yaakov's good deeds. Because he was so righteous and open, sensitive to this kind of reality. 
because he was a chacham, because he was truly wise and perceptive. We don't see anything. But even if we would see, we wouldn't know the difference between angels created by our own mitzvot or angels that come from a higher place. But Yaakov could. And therefore he said, Two different kinds of angels. Angels created through mitzvot. And Elu Sheshalcho Menashemayim. But Rashi doesn't follow that school of thought because that's not part of the Pshutas Homikra. It doesn't say anywhere. I mean, what's the origin of this? Well, I did find it in a Medrash Tanchuma. The Medrash Tanchuma says that the Malachim that Yaakov met, it says about Yaakov, he's Ishtam, he's a wholehearted person, Yosheva Holim, dwells in proverbial tents. This refers to tents of Torah. So the Medrash says that. When he was doing ishtam b'masim tovim, tam wholehearted means in good things. He did lots of good things, and he was Yosef Halom osek b'Torah, v'nit rabe b'mitzvot because he had such an abundance of mitzvahs. Nimsru lo machnas malachim. Therefore, he was given angels. You do good things, God will give you angels. Those angels will be your protectors. Your good deeds serve to shield you, quite literally. So the Ma'amalois draws on this Medrash Tanchuma and various other Medrashim and statements in the Zohar and he creates this very interesting synergy where there's two different kinds of angels and that's the plural, that's the camps. Rashi has no indication of this in a straightforward reading. We do know about two groups of angels when Yaakov leaves the land of Israel. Makes perfect sense. Two groups of angels, different kinds of angels, the angels outside of Israel, the angels of Eretz Yisrael, and that's what's going on here. That's what we're talking about. Now, Ranban, Nachmanides, is very much bothered with this whole scene that's being drawn for us. And Nachmanides says, I don't know what's going on here. He says, I'm like astounded by Rashi's words. He hasn't reached the land of Israel. In fact, he's quite far from the land of Israel. And the angels would travel such a distance? He hasn't even crossed over the Jabbok River. But the Jabbok River is, he says, Yaakov still has to go through the border of what's called the land of Ammon. This is southeast of Israel. He's still southeast of Israel. And he only enters Israel. Further north, it's Shechem. It's where he, the first, when he comes into Israel, he enters in the area of Shechem. So he says, he's got a ways to travel here. He's going through Eretz Ammon, Eretz Moab, and Edom. That whole southeastern area is going to be traversed by Yaakov. What are the angels from Israel doing there? So Ramban takes a different approach. And this follows something that Ramban develops very thoroughly in the beginning of Parsha's Vayera, where he says that when Abraham saw angels, they were the angels engendered by his act of sacrifice, by his act of defiance to the whole wide world, an act of commitment to Hashem by performing the Brit Milah. And Ramban earlier in, in chapter 18 says that you should know that when a Jew goes out of his way to do an extraordinary act of devotion, at times, he will merit to see some kind of revelation. Ramban says we saw this, for example, at the Mishkan, where the people toiled and yearned to have a, a Mishkan, a place that would, a repository for the Shekhinah. And then Aaron blesses them, and Vayeda Kved Hashem. And Hashem's presence was revealed to them. He says, the toil, the efforts they expended on crafting the Mishkan 
As a result of this, zachu l'ri'iyat tashchina. They merited to see the shchina. And he says that's why Abraham merited to see the shchina because of his commitment to Hashem. And Ramban says the same thing is true about Yaakov. Because of what he did, he merited to see these angels. And he says the angels say nothing to him. This is not a prophecy. He's not being given a message. He was emerited to see ministering higher angels. And this is Malach Elikim. He says, and he was able to know that the activities of the last 22 years, 20 years or so, were appreciated by God. So it's, like, it's just an affirmation. That's how Ramban looks at this. Ramban says, it can't be the angels from Israel. It's the angels that Yaakov sees, and these are the angels that give him affirmation. You know, it's interesting that in the Targum Yonatum in Azil, and I mentioned this before, it says that Kevan the Chaminun, once he saw these angels, he saw them like from a distance, right? So he says, Loi Mashrevon de Esav. He says, these are not the people of, of Esau that are coming to fight me. Hinun, the Asyon Lekad Musiara before me. Loi Mashirvion Lulovan, Hanu. This is not the people of Laban who are pursuing me. But these are the angels of God. The Ishtalochu min Kadam Hashem that are sent by God. Hinun, here. The Ginkach, Korosh made the That's why he called the name of the places, Targum Yonatu Benazil. He called it. Beit Kudsha, holy place, Machanoim. Now, in the Targum Yerushalmi, it adds a very interesting notion over here. He says, these are Malachin min Kodam Hashem Atin. These are the angels coming from before God. L'mishizve Yosei min Yodei Terihun. To protect him from those who wish to harm him. So the protective angels. Who did Yaakov say this to, by the way? <laughs> the Bali Ateis say something very interesting. Bali Ateis say, that Yaakov told us to his children. And he says that's because his children were living in Laban's house. You didn't see angels in Laban's house. You saw angels in Abraham's house. In fact, Hagar saw angels and she had no problem. She didn't get overwhelmed or get excited. She didn't talk to the angels. Why? Because she lived in Abraham's house. It says Abraham's house, Rashi says, angels were frequent guests, so you could see angels in the proximity of Abraham's house. But in Laban's house, there were no angels being seen. And therefore, it was the children, the Balea say, that thought, uh-oh, Dad, is this Uncle Esau's monsters coming? Is this Zadie Laban's messengers after us? Are they going to fight with us? The Balea say, Pacha Duvaradu, the children were terrified. Amr lehem Yaakov, Yaakov says, that's the Vayomer Yaakov, according to Balea he said to him, Al-Tiru, in Yiddish, Kindalachotnish Kemeira, my dear children, don't be afraid. This is a camp. This is God's. Mishalahem. They're ours. And Rabban says something very similar. He says that the, these angels, he says, uh, who, whose angels are they? He says, these are the angels, Lahodienu, to tell us that they're with us. They're with us. And Ramban doesn't read into the notion of the multiples. He says, you don't have to read into that. That's, that's, uh, that's the way it's spoken of. 
the camp of angels, camps of angels, there are gaggles of angels, groups of angels. He said that. He doesn't read into that. But Rashi does. And Rashi says in Pshutosh Mikra, we cannot simply say angels came. He doesn't have that whole narrative that Ramban develops in Parshas Vayera in the beginning. And so according to Rashi, they are angels, Eretz Yisrael angels, who have come far out of Israel. And then the angels of Israel, and Yaakov's eyes are revealed, and it seems from the words of the Baliatosos, the children, the family could see the angels too. And there was an affirmation. It was an affirmation that Hashem is pleased. Hashem is pleased with Yaakov, and Hashem is pleased with his children. And he's, he's, getting, a, he's getting a wink from heaven. He's getting a, a pat on the back. He's being told that things are going to be okay. It's God's way of reassuring him. And maybe sometimes we have this privilege, maybe not of seeing angels in the literal way, but we sometimes get a bit of reassurance. You don't know sometimes if you're doing the right thing or not, and then you happen to see something, happen to hear something, and you just know it. it's the right thing to do. You just know. Sometimes you can have a dream, especially if it's moments before you wake up. They could be real. Sometimes somebody happens to say something to you. You know, recently there was a person who I, I thought behaved very offensively, so I just tuned them out. And then I started hearing from the grapevine, this person's offended. I'm like, wow. Like, we were, I was offended. I was spoken to untowardly, so I just, I didn't respond. And now that person's offended. And I heard a story at a Fabrengen, you know, that famous Zoom Fabrengen with Shluchim from all over, of, of, of an elder chassid who, who wasn't in the wrong, and yet the Rebbe expected him to reach out and express himself. So I thought to myself, you know what, I should, I should reach out to this person. I should swallow my pride and just, just reach out and be friendly. But it was like a thought, you know, it's a thought. And then, and then I had like a dream before I woke up and I had this, this, this dream and, I'm, and, and I have the same idea. Of course, maybe I was thinking about it, I, I don't know. But funny, like an hour later, and, I, and somebody mentions to me at davening, somebody says, What's with that guy? Do you ever call him or speak to him? And I'm like, wow, okay, that's like three in a row. I was thinking about it. It was like shows up my dream and like, this must be the right thing. You know what? I made a phone call. And whatever, left a message, got back. It was a nice conversation and I felt better. Like, what do you need to be at, at odds with people? So sometimes, sometimes Hashem gives you a little reassurance. I'm, I'm not a tzaddik, I'm a... A regular joke, but any regular joke can sometimes get like, you know, a little push, a little nudge, especially when you go out of your, out of your way, especially when you, when you eat a little bit of humble bread, especially when you can transcend your own self-importance or self-esteem and just forget about yourself and just think about somebody else and try to make somebody else feel good. And oftentimes Hashem gives us like, you know, I like to call it a little wink from heaven. But there's a really big question that I, I bet you've been thinking of this and we haven't dealt with it at all and that's what I'm going to conclude today's class with. And the question is this. When Rashi began this whole story, you know, we kind of set the stage for today's class with the angels that were going up and angels coming down. What was the principle? The operating principle was that the angels from Israel don't leave Israel. But here they are leaving Israel. Like, the whole premise was two groups of angels because we have the Eretz Yisrael angels and the outside of Eretz Yisrael angels. But hey, now all of a sudden, we're talking about angels, and as Ramban points out, going a significant distance outside of Eretz Yisrael. And it, you have to kind of understand the verbiage of the Torah, like, because Vayif Gu'uboi, 
They encounter him, as Reb Shlomo Astrog says. They go out and reach him. What's going on here? Why, why are they going out to reach him? Something does not seem to be adding up here. And there are two camps. And Rashi learns that there, there are two camps. So the Rebbe says an amazing thing. He says, we can answer this question on two very different planes. First, let's talk about it in what's called Derech HaPshat. Just understanding what happened here. In the beginning of the Torah portion, Yaakov is going outside. He's leaving the land of Israel. He's leaving Canaan. He's leaving the Holy Land. The angels aren't going to leave the land. These are holy angels. They're, they're holier angels because in Israel, it's a holy place. And in that holy terrain, a holy geography, on those coordinates, there are more powerful or more sensitive angels. It's a different kind of angel. These angels don't leave the land of Israel. Ah, but now Yaakov is not leaving the land of Israel. Now Yaakov is coming back. He's coming back into Eretz Yisrael. To welcome somebody coming back into Eretz Yisrael is not called leaving Eretz Yisrael. They're technically out of Eretz Yisrael, but they're bringing somebody into Eretz Yisrael. That they can do. In the Rebbe's words, their exit is not considered an exit. It's not considered leaving Israel because the whole purpose of that exit is not a departure, but rather an entrance. So they never really left Israel, per se. Just like you understand that the embassy of a country can actually be the soil, the sovereign soil of the country that, of which it's an embassy for. Or when you go through, let's say at the border, you cross the border in the airport, that you're technically on American soil because you cross the border here in Canada. You cross the border. Once you cross the border, if there would be some kind of legal issue, it would be under American, United States jurisdiction. There's different policing there. It's a different jurisdiction. I mean, in theory, American police could arrest you once you cross the border, even though you're technically still in Canada because that's that area, that, that, that hub, a part of the airport, is considered to be an extension of a different country. They're technically out of Israel, but they're not called leaving Israel because, because they were left Israel in order to bring it back. And there brings a, a beautiful parallel for this in Halacha from the words of the Rambam, but I don't want to get into that because we've spent quite a bit of time in this already, but you should know that there's a, an exquisite argument, exquisite, beautiful, beautiful way the Rebbe demonstrates this by the precise verbiage of the Rambam in Hilchus Malachim, what he does say in the Halacha and what he excludes from the Halacha when he quotes the Talmud, which actually serves as a Halachic basis for this very thesis. For this, so it's a, it's a solid thesis on a level of Pshat. Then the Rebbe says though, on a deeper level, on a mystical level, on a spiritual level, a Kabbalistic level. When Yaakov left the land of Israel, so the land of Israel is holy, organically, by virtue of it being the land that Hashem has chosen for the Jewish people. But when he goes out to Beit Lavan, it, it was a, a place that was devoid of holiness. Remember, Abraham left there a long time ago. Isaac never left Israel, and Jacob has never left Israel. So there hasn't yet been a person who possesses an ashama in that way that's Ever since Rivka left, there hasn't been any righteous people doing anything righteous outside of Eretz Yisrael. 
but now Yaakov went there. And he spent 20 years there, spent more than two decades there. And so Yaakov, by being there, he actually elevated the terrain. He changed the atmosphere. We know that the Rabbeim sent messengers to live in Eretz Yisrael. The Alter Rebbe wanted to be part of that original Aliyah, the first modern Aliyah, 1776. The first ones to lead a group to go back to Eretz Yisrael in modern times is the Hasidim. And the Alter Rebbe was part of that. And he had to be persuaded to go back because they said if you'll leave Eastern Europe, the Hasidic movement, which was still a fledgling movement, would actually collapse. It was due to the force of the Alter Rebbe's genius and spiritual charisma that he was able to really rally the Hasidic movement. Even the parts of the movement that didn't fall under the, 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 the masthead of Chabad, but still the Alter Rebbe's presence was edifying for all of the Talmidim, all the disciples of the Magad of Bizrich. So he leaves, he leaves this journey, travels back, takes up residence in, in Belarus or White Russia, but only after accepting upon himself the sacred duty of raising the funds to support the Hasidim living in Eretz Yisrael. Incidentally, that is the continuous, the oldest continuous charity in Israel. It's called Kol Chabad. It's still active. In fact, it's the largest network of soup kitchens and, and, and clinics, medical clinics in the land of Israel today. The Rebbe had a tzedakah box on his desk for Kol Chabad. The Rebbe was the president of the charity. All the Rebbe were. The middle Rebbe sent his daughter, his beloved daughter, Rebbe Semenucha Rachel, and her husband, Rebbe Yaakov Kulislanim, sent them as his agents, his emissaries. He, the Rebbeim purchased property in Hebron. But then there's a chassid who comes to the Tzemach Tzedek, and he wants to go to Israel, and instead of being patted on the back, and so that's amazing, Tzemach Tzedek began to ask him questions like, the, the Torah class you're giving, who's going to be doing that instead? The, the charitable fund you've been raising money for and distributing, who's going to do that? The the uh, free loan society you've been operating, and it goes through a whole series of things, and who's gonna do all those things? And the chassid had to admit that nobody, it probably wouldn't happen. Tzemach Tzedek said, in that case, mach do Eretz Yisrael, then your job will be to rarify the atmosphere right here, and create a sense of closeness to Hashem, like the one that we can achieve in Eretz Yisrael. The Rebbe suggests that Yaakov, through his efforts outside of Eretz Yisrael, actually changed the atmosphere to the point that whilst the angels of Israel couldn't leave Israel before, now they were able to. Before Yaakov's efforts, they couldn't. But after Yaakov's efforts, those angels actually could leave the land of Eretz Yisrael without being overwhelmed by its lack of God's presence because Yaakov had created the presence of God now outside of Eretz Yisrael as well. On another occasion, the Rebbe talked about the notion of these two camps, two different kinds of angels that are kind of brought together under a common roof. And the whole area is called Machanoim, plural. And in Rashi's view, it is the differences, the angels of Eretz Yisrael and outside of Eretz Yisrael. And the Rebbe suggested that this unity, this common camp of both kinds of Malachim, the angels of Eretz Yisrael and outside of it represent the ultimate mission and purpose, which is to change the atmosphere, the energy, the spirituality of outside of Eretz Yisrael so that it becomes seamless with the holiness of Eretz Yisrael. 
that God's presence should be felt, known, seen, and expressed everywhere in Hashem's world so that all of it together becomes Machanoim, the camp of God. And the truth, the truth is that when Mashiach will come very speedily and in our days, it says we will take our synagogues and our houses of Torah study. But it says, Chazal, our sages tell us in the Gemara Masech and Megillah on page 29, side A, it says that all of those holy houses, those edifices of holiness, like the one we're in right now, are going to be miraculously transported and established in the land of Israel. And they will become a portion. We won't leave this behind. We'll elevate it and take it along. And the Rebbe elaborated on this idea, and he said that everybody can make a holy place in their own home, and especially now where so many people can't come to synagogues or houses of study, where so many people are prevented, the Rebbe pointed out we should be having Hebrew books, holy books in our homes, and make sure to give tzedakah on a regular basis, and, 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 and to do holy things in your home, so it too becomes a microcosm of a Beit HaKnesset and a Beit HaMedrash. And my friends, the ultimate mission and goal is not simply to leave everything behind, but rather to take it along. The angels that we create will come together with us, and there we'll be reunited in the greatest camp of holiness, the future Eretz Yisrael, which is Asidol Hispashit, which will spread and be inclusive of all parts of Hashem's beautiful world, with the coming of Mashiach, Bimheda will be Amenu Amen. Thanks so much for joining today. Have a great day.